Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to The Price of Music, the show that looks at the money behind the music industry with me, Steve Lamack, and Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge. Uh, Stuart, what have you been listening to this week? Well, I've been listening to a new song by This Is The Kit, which I loved, but I had that moment of halfway through thinking, this is familiar, sounds a bit like something else. Sounds a bit like, I think it's a Griff Reese song. And inevitably, it's a, a literal cover of a Griff Reese song. <laughs> and I realized, that, but I love that. And then I watched that Wham! documentary on Netflix. So I've had Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go rattling around my skull all week. Oh How about goodness. you? Um, it's an embarrassment of riches this week. The Idols album uh, is out. Uh, so I've been listening to that a little bit. But also I've got an advanced copy of Nadine Shah's album, which I think oh, yeah. has got some of her best vocal performances of her entire career on this forthcoming record, uh, which is out on Friday. I just think it's really – and the music's really punchy, even though it's quite a dark record in places. It's certainly a ruthlessly honest record. But I think it's, I think it's, a, you know, it's a really interesting album, and it has it has moments where it really um, swoops in and around you. I think, although there is one track I mentioned this uh, in an interview I did with her the other day. There's one brilliant track called "Food for Fuel," which has got a sound effect which makes it makes you sound like you're disappearing down a plug hole. But I mean, you know, not not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I'm surprised either of us have had a chance to listen to any music, actually, because you particularly have been very busy these uh, past few days uh, working on a handful of stories, starting with this, which we're covering because since we launched this show, the question we've been asked more often than any other by people we've spoken to is, how does Spotify distribute its cash? How does its royalty payment system actually work that's the mystery which we'll dig into although i mean we should i guess because it's had such an impact on the music industry so we just start by covering the basics very quickly so spotify in a nutshell how big is it and do you know what the company's currently valued at how much it's worth I do, thankfully, because that would be an awkward start, if not. Yeah, so, so I mean, Spotify is a public company, so it has a very public value, like it's on the stock market. So as we speak today, it's it's market cap, it's valuation. It's $48.5 billion, so it's around 38.5 billion quid. Um, and it made uh, just over 13 billion euros last year. It's a complicated thing because it declares its finances in euros, its stock prices in dollars. And obviously, we're in the Queen's English, so we have to convert it all. But it made about £11.3 billion last year in revenues. So that's the kind of financial stuff. But obviously, there's also the kind of the listener user data 
bigness of it too. Oh uh, yeah, of course. And has that has that stock market value has that recovered? Because wasn't there a point about I don't know about a year and a half ago, maybe the start of last year, where its shares took quite a hit for some reason. They did, yeah. I mean, it's basically, it, it was high for a while, then it went down, and it was down to about uh, 15, well, just under $16 billion a year and a half ago. So essentially, its value has tripled in the last year and a half. Um, but before that, it fell off a cliff. So it's one of those things where it's kind of gone up and down like a roller coaster, really, over time. Um, but now it's kind of on the up. And how many subscribers? We mentioned this last week, but um, how many subscribers does it currently have? So at the end of last year, it had 602 million listeners. So that's people listening every month to Spotify. And 236 million of them were subscribers paying for it. So it's the biggest subscription service in music. Uh, Like in terms of free listens, it's smaller than YouTube. So YouTube has about one and a half billion people using YouTube for music. But only about 100 million of those are paying, whereas Spotify has 236. So it's the biggest subscription music service. And it's pretty big in terms of listeners. So... Shall we start on this then? We'll have to break it down, I think, bit by bit. But um, do you want to start off by attempting to explain how Spotify pays musicians? Yeah, it's like, it's like a can of worms. When you kick it over, there's there's more cans of worms inside. It's a, or maybe not Russian doll, maybe not kind of worms. Um, the biggest thing, the biggest thing that I always try and say to people is Spotify doesn't actually pay musicians directly. Like, that's a really key point. It pays labels and publishers and distributors and collecting societies who then pay musicians. Which means that like whenever you see a figure of what Spotify is paying out, that's what's going to the industry. And then what you get as an artist or a songwriter depends on your deal with your label, your deal with your publisher, depends how much of that you're seeing. Um, And we actually had this big streaming inquiry in the UK in in, in Parliament. They were looking into the numbers of all this. And the major labels did a session and they were saying, yeah, you know, a lot of deals are 20%. So an artist might get 20% of the streaming revenue that comes in. So for every thousand quid that comes in, they'll get 200 quid of it. But like anything in the music industry, there's no standard deal. Like some deals are much better than that. Some deals are much worse than that. But yeah, the key point I think to everything I'm about to say now is what Spotify pays out isn't what goes into the pockets of artists because there's a whole bunch of stuff in between. Okay. And of course, it's different if you're a solo artist, again, uh, uh, compared to a band, because once everything else has been taken away and you've got your 20%, then you've got to split the 20% between however many people in the band. <laughs> Well, that's it, yeah. So if you're the polyphonic spree, you're fucked. <laughs> well, maybe I think maybe they slimmed down, didn't they? But um, but like, yeah. So if, for example, if you're if you are an Ed Sheeran, who is solo solo artist, writes a lot of his songs himself, and he basically performs alone, doesn't he? I think still he's never band. You're keeping the biggest slice you can of all the money. Whereas if you are a band of four, splitting four ways, um, and then if you're songwriters, like some bands, only the songwriters own money for the publishing. Other bands, I think Pulp famously did this. Pulp famously split the songwriting five ways, didn't they, I think? Yeah, Pulp did. Songs. Uh, yeah, and so did Blur, I think, most of the time yeah, as well. Yeah, which is good for cutting out arguments. And But so I think I think the other thing, I mean, it's all these variables. Like for songwriters, for example, if you wrote the song alone, you get all the publishing money for the songwriter. If you co-wrote it with two other people, depending on how you split that, and for some like pop songs, some chart songs now, it's not unusual to have like seven, eight co-writers, or if you've mm. if you've interpolated something or sampled something there. So th- there's there's a lot of divisions that can happen with the basic money that goes. So yeah, so whenever you hear a figure for Spotify payouts, it's normally before all that happens. And so what actual person's using their pocket can be quite different um, depending on all those things. 
So, all right, the next tricky bit then. So, well, I mean, this isn't uh, just how much does Spotify pay out? That's reasonably easy. We know that from its total, the, the money it's made, how much it pays out. But then how does it distribute the money? That's right. Yeah. So we talked about this last week. Um, so Spotify pays out about 63% of its revenues in royalties. Uh, last year, that was $9 billion of payouts, um, which is how we got to that figure. Um, and that, so this is where we get into the super weeds. And this is where I want you to kind of pull me out if I get too deep because it goes, okay. it's I so will. nerdy. I'll try. <laughs> but since the beginning of streaming, there's been this thing called the pro rata model. And pro rata basically means all those royalties go into these central pools um, based on geography. So like the, the pool for the UK, India, different places have different pools so that one doesn't affect the other. And they divide that according to the share of streams. So if you are a top artist with one and a half percent of the streams, you get one and a half percent of that royalties pool. Um, but what that also means is like as a Spotify subscriber, the royalties from my subscription don't only go to the stuff I listen to, they go into that pool. So I mean, the good example here is like Taylor Swift um, was the biggest artist last year, and she accounted in the US for 1.8% of all music streams. That was kind of a figure for a report at Christmas. So to brutally kind of simplify it, her rights holders got 1.8% of everyone's subscription. And that's people who hate Taylor Swift, never listen to her, but also the huge Swifties who maybe listen to her, you know, all the time. Only one point. So there's kind of this this thing where people people assume often, or you, they used to assume. There's been a lot of talk about it now that maybe it educates everyone. People used to assume that their money went to their their artists they listen to, but yeah. it's not. That's not the way it works. So so just uh, so for absolute clarity, when I listen to I don't know the new the current Man Woman Chainsaw single, Man Woman Chainsaw don't get paid for that play that. That well, apart from the fact that that percentage of a penny goes, it doesn't go directly to them. It just boosts their very small percentage of the total financial pool. Is that right? Yeah, that's it. And that's why you often see people talking about these per stream figures. So how mm. much you get for a Spotify stream, and that's basically calculated on dividing your earnings by the number of streams you got. But it's not how it's paid out. Spotify doesn't pay you this much for every stream and everyone gets the same amount. It's about yeah, dividing this pool. Uh, and that's been one of the things that, that over time people have started to go, well, is this the best way of doing it? Is this fair? Um, there are some people this feels very good for, if you're big artists, other people it feels less fair for. So, so this idea of the changing the pro rata payouts has become a, a bigger theme in recent years. Yeah, this is what a lot of people have been campaigning for. I mean, I mean we should mention broken records here. Tom Tom Gray has been very um, vocal uh, in challenging the current system. But what's what are the alternatives and what are the artists advocating for? Yeah, so this is right. So one of the complaints about this model, which is, is not just Spotify, I should say, like it's how the big streaming services have worked historically. They all follow the same way. Is that you're kind of you you may you may be losing out if you're not a huge pop star, and especially if you're in like a genre like like a metal or jazz or folk, something where you have like maybe smaller listeners overall, but really committed. They can you know if metal fans listen to a lot of metal music, but a lot of their money is going to other genres and so on. So there's been talk about different alternatives, and that one of them most talked about one was called user centric, which again is is one of these terms that is is often talked about. And that is where literally your royalties go to who you listen to or what you listen to. Um, so changing that model. And there've been some studies that, I mean, <clears throat> there've been a load of studies and no one is quite sure what it would be different because it hasn't been really tried at scale. 
But then people were saying, well, this might be good for those genres, jazz, classical, metal, where you have those really kind of fervent fan bases who listen to a lot of the music from that genre. Um, and it could also help to fight stuff like, which is what we're going to talk about, I think, in, previous, in other episodes about streaming fraud. This idea of people who are criminals who have vast warehouses of, of devices streaming music to kind of earn royalties. User-centric could stop that because each of those devices that they've got in their dodgy warehouse can only make the royalties that they're spending on its subscription. So there's kind of a, a reason why that model would be quite good from there. Um, but it hasn't happened, basically, because, um, well, big labels didn't like it and didn't agree to it. And there were some experiments with user-centric. So SoundCloud did an experiment, Tidal, which is was Jay-Z's streaming service. But the biggest ones like Spotify didn't go for it. And that's because they couldn't really get everyone to sign off, I think. Right. Why, why are the majors against the user-centric model? And what's and do they have do they have an alternative of their own, which they would prefer? Well, yeah. So this all went on behind closed doors. And I would perennially love to be a fly on the wall with those talks about why. Because it, so it's a lot of it is speculation. But uh, so, so one assumption has been there was a fear of change. Like no one knew for sure how changing for, to user-centric would mean for the big labels. And when you kind of go, well, we might lose out. So we're not sure we want to do it. That's one theory. Um, but there have been other concerns like that th- th- this change could have these unforeseen consequences. So one of the ones was that shifting this way might penalise certain genres at the expense of others. There was one study that said maybe that hip hop and R&B might get penalised, might lose out because they're the most popular genres in the streaming age. And it's kind of a, a concern if you're bringing a new model in that is rooting music away from genres predominantly black artists towards genres predominantly white artists. And there was kind of concerns like, is this really what we want to do? Do you want to make the stream model penalise some genres more than others? But um, but there's also some worries that, like user-centric might give, it might actually go the opposite way. So if you don't listen to much music, if you're kind of a casual, um, you play like three or four albums a month. Under user-centric, all your, your tenor is split between quite a few artists, not many artists. And so, you know, they do really well. Whereas real super fans, like people who love music, who stream lots of music, your tenor's being spread more thinly, perhaps. So there were kind of, there were all these discussions about, we're not sure this new model might work in certain ways, but it might do these things. There was uncertainty, I suppose. And that kind of encouraged everyone, or encouraged the big labels to say, no, we want to go a different way. And that's what they have been doing, like you say, with, with this thing, with another buzzword called artist-centric uh, streaming. <laughs> so it's all lo- lots of centricity, lots of centrics and lots of kind of uh, jargon. Um, but yeah, artist-centric is a buzzword this year, which we can talk about. Um, there have been some changes, haven't there? We mentioned this uh, the other week, I think it was last week, um, uh, was Spotify reacting to some of the concerns of the music business, uh, or at least the major labels. And one of those things was to essentially wipe out payments to anyone whose songs don't get streamed a thousand times a year. Yeah, so this is so this, this idea of artist-centric streaming, it's actually coined by Universal Music Group, the biggest label. And basically, it's about three main changes. So one is cracking down on streaming fraud, cracking down on criminals, getting money that artists should be getting. Um, another aspect is like less royalties for what they call non-music noise. I'm doing air quotes, <laughs> audible air quotes, <laughs> non-music noise, which is kind of like wave sounds, white noise, rain sounds, with a lot of that on streaming. And then the third thing which we'll talk about is, is this idea of shifting royalties away from the least popular music tracks towards, and again, more air quotes, professional artists. So so in terms of Spotify, yeah, you're right. Basically, they're, they're, their changes they're bringing in, 
They're not going to pay royalties for tracks until they've been streamed a thousand times in the last year. Um, they're going to crack down on fraud. And if you're a music distributor and you upload music and it's later found to be criminals getting stuff they shouldn't, you can get fined. And they're going to kind of uh, stop paying royalties to non-music noise tracks if they're less than two minutes long, which tackles those kind of eight-hour playlists of like 30-second wave sound tracks listened to every night, which, which is one of the concerns. Like that stuff, that can hoover up royalties that isn't going to musicians. So, but yeah, but the, the really the thing that's been discussed most is this idea of, yeah, you don't get royalties until you've been streamed a thousand times. Uh, just to pick up on a couple of points, um, uh, one being... Uh, is this right? You you, you get paid uh, for once the track's got thirty seconds in. Is it? I think you only have to play thirty seconds, or is is, is that one of those? Yeah, 30, um, thirty seconds is a royalty generated thing. Yeah, so if you've got a twenty nine second skit on a hip hop album, that's not earning any money. And if, if someone skips you after ten seconds, you, there's no royalty on that either. I interviewed. Uh, I, I, I can't. Uh, uh, repeat their name, but a young hip hop artist uh, who I said, oh, one of the things I love about your EP is the fact that all the songs are really economical and they all clock in just under two and a half minutes. It's like the it's like the old punk rock songs. Uh, and he just looked at me and went, "You get paid after thirty seconds. What's the point of making a five minute record? <laughs> What's the point?" Wow, uh, that's one. Uh, also, also, just touching, and we will, as you mentioned, I think we'll have to come back to this at some point. But f- when it comes to fraud and Spotify, um, the, the the people in question, what's happening is they're creating, or they're probably even getting a bot now to create very short pieces of music, often instrumental music, uh, and then yeah, and then there's a warehouse full of uh, computers that are repeatedly streaming. Uh, the tracks to generate revenue. That's that's the problem. This is it. Like when we say streaming fraud, people think about artists kind of juicing their own numbers and trying to go more royalties, but it's not that. It's criminals saying, oh, you know, we could take a break from kind of getting people's PayPal account details and try and make some money from streaming music. But um, yeah, that's one of the big things about this is this idea of like there's a lot of money being lost to from the music industry to fraud. So trying to get that that money back to get paid artists. But yeah, so it's kind of, it's a few things at once. So it's not just about the royalty changes, it's about those two other things as well. But yeah, there's a lot of change in the air and Spotify was one of the first to talk about what it's doing. And all this is partly to partly prompted by this idea of moving, and again, it seems to be emanating from the major labels, moving money to the major artists, the bigger artists. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where, because because an Universal Music Group particularly has been so to the front of this, it's, it's, it's a major... But I would say there's like... Cracking down on fraud and cracking down on non-music noise content. I think indies and majors are kind of of a similar mind. These these would be good things. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's about this definition of kind of saying right. We think we should shift money away from the stuff that is the least popular towards. And this is where they talk about professional artists, which is a whole can of worms in itself. For saying who decides what a professional artist is and how what the threshold is. So in Spotify's case, that threshold is if your tracks are getting streamed less than a thousand times each in the last year, you're you're kind of almost not worthy of, of earning money. And we can rework that towards artists who are getting more than that, because those are the artists who are trying to make a living and trying to earn money. Um, I mean, it's kind of a, a bit of a nebulous thing. Like if you if your tracks are getting streamed a little, you're not earning any money. But if your tracks are getting streamed two thousand times in a year, you're also making pennies. Like these are these are very small numbers either way. But it is. I think and you might have a few views on this, but it is about this kind of this judgment suddenly being taken of who has the right to earn and who doesn't. 
which is kind of an interesting moment for the industry. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think that's a debate which will come up. It may even come up in our next podcast, um, having had a look through some of your questions, uh, which we're going to get to uh, in, I think, the next episode, which we'll dedicate to uh, answering some of your questions. In, in terms of uh, the approach of other streaming services, so uh, mostly everyone does things the, the same, or has anyone else, have any of the other services attempted anything you know, radically different or are they going about, are there uh, maybe more subtle differences between other streaming services and Spotify? Yeah, they have. So I mentioned like user-centric payouts and, and SoundCloud did some of that. Title. Like SoundCloud is still doing that. It's called a thing called fan-powered royalties and it's put a report out recently talking about how artists can benefit from that. Um, Deezer was the first one last year to say, we're on board with this idea of artist-centric royalties with Universal. And yeah, it's Kind of similar to Spotify, but slightly different. So for Deezer, if you're an artist with more than a 1,000 monthly streams from more than 500 listeners, you're going to get a double boost, they called it, in the royalties calculations formula. So in effect, your your, your streams will count double when they calculate the payouts, um, which means that artists with less than that, they're not being not paid, but they're going to get, you know, they're going to be kind of what the opposite of boosted is, de-boosted. <laughs> Um, penalizing um and then these has also got a thing about they're gonna also give a boost to tracks that are actively engaged with which is kind of interesting this is where, where tracks that someone has searched for and played or have played from the artist's profile or have played from their own library so like when you're actually oh, okay. saying i want to hear this song they're going to get boosted in its formula too whereas stuff you just hear on a playlist or stuff you just hear because the algorithm has recommended it to you they're not going to get boosted under that so there's kind of a they're trying to do something where it's like, okay, if you're choosing to listen to something, it should get a boost, a payout boost. And they're also cracking out on fraud and on music stuff. So that, so yeah, there's kind of, it's similar to Spotify, but interesting kind of differences. And that's one of the things is that I think we're going to see companies take slightly different approaches rather than all do the same thing like they have done. Yeah, because isn't there, so Apple Music have got uh, a different twist on this. Apple, I don't know, what's it called? What What's their definition? It's a, it, I mean, it sounds to me like we're going back to quadraphonic sound in the 70s and you're <laughs> going to need four giant speakers. What's it What's it actually called? Yeah, it's called spatial audio. So yeah, it's um, spatial surround, audio. Yeah, spatial audio. Surround sound music, which is something very, Apple's been very keen on. Um, and the difference nowadays is that you can have it in a decent pair of headphones. Now you don't need 17 speakers. Um, but yeah, so they're doing it where some labels will get a boost, again, a boost in the royalty calculations if their catalogue is available in spatial audio. There's a whole bunch of caveats around this that people are arguing about. Indies are particularly worried about this because they're sort of saying, well, it's quite expensive to make spatial audio. Uh, and if we can't afford to do it, does that mean we get penalised? But yeah, so Apple Music is it, it's not it's not doing the whole how popular is your music thing? It's doing, well, actually, if you have your music available in this thing that we like, um, we're going to give it a boost. And, and Apple's argument is that's high quality and that's what they'd say. Also, I mean, also, are they trying to make it unique to them? It always strikes me that Apple are trying to find something which gives them a service which is different to everyone else's service that makes you yeah, have to go to them. Yeah, and for them, spatial audio is also about their headphones and their speakers and, you know, it's part of the uh, overall strategy. So, yeah, it's interesting to see them taking a slightly different tack. Um, but they're all, they're, everyone is trying to make changes. And it's about, I suppose if you kind of boil it down, what they say, and I'm always very careful with my words because I don't want to sound like I'm saying this is all brilliant. I agree with all of it. What they're saying is it's about quality in some way. 
quality either being judged by the popularity of your music or quality being judged by the sound in Apple's case. And and that's, again, this interesting new phase for the industry where they're who's setting this definition of what quality and popularity is and, and how open is that process? Yeah, I don't think quality and popularity necessarily exist in the same <laughs> sentence in my mind. <laughs> you mentioned, uh, you may, we, we talked about, you know, the, the majors and where they're trying to maybe push uh, the future. Um, but the, uh, the independent labels and independent musicians, um, what's their reaction to what's going on in the current system and what may be implemented in the future? Um, because there's a few big indie labels, so I, I imagine are still are scrabbling around trying to keep up with just the power of the majors, uh, I guess. I think so. And one of the things about the streaming area is that indies have done really well. Like indies do well on streaming services. They have a good share of streams. So they're, they're important, I think. Uh, and arguably, maybe have more clout together nowadays than maybe they did ever before. But yes, yeah, so they like some of this stuff. That They like the idea of streaming. For, like No one disagrees with cracking down on streaming fraud other than the criminals doing streaming fraud. Like everyone is, you know, indies like, and I think most indies I've talked to, they like the idea of non-artists or non-music noise content being separated off from music somehow. Um, but I have had some voice from some, like labels who do kind of ambient music or lo-fi music saying, well, who, okay, who's drawing the line here between what's non-music noise and what's ambient? So there's, there's potential for some argument there. But um I think the real the worries that have been expressed, and we had a musical actually published a, a column by uh, Martin Mills and some other independent veterans, and they're saying they're kind of worried about this idea of thresholds, like popularity thresholds of if you have over this, you can earn or you can earn more. Um, and they're worried this might penalise artists who are just starting out. So if you're really at the beginning of your career, is this is a bit of a kick in the teeth to say, well, you can't earn until you get to this level. And I think they've also said they're worried a bit about they're worried that they're not part of the process of deciding what this these new rules should be. Like it, it kind of came out of Universal Music and then Deezer and Spotify said what they were doing. And the indies are kind of saying, actually, we'd like to be involved in discussing this and figuring it out. Um, and I think also a slight worry as well that when you set a threshold of like, okay, we're not going to pay over this amount, under this amount rather, what could you raise that in two years time, five years time? Like in five years time, could it be 5,000 streams a month or a year? Could it be 10,000? So I think there's a kind of a, a slightly bigger concern from indies that they want to be consulted and part of the decision-making process. And they maybe don't feel it's been quite as transparent so far. Um, when I, I, Universal Music were asked about this at a conference recently, and they kind of said, we think it's a, a work in progress and we're listening, which is kind of what you have to say, but th- th- that was their response. Like, we're not setting this in stone. There's there's going to be some changes. So my hope is that indies will be a big part of that, because if not, that's that's not very good. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the meantime, is there is there anything we can do to help artists on Spotify? Uh, given that not not all our money, if you you know you press play on a song, the money doesn't directly go to to them. Is there any anything else we can do to I don't know in terms of raising the profile or you know just anything else we can do to support uh, musicians we like on Spotify? Yeah, do you know this is the big thing. Like, I've been writing about this. For so long now. And the more I write about the streaming economy, the more I want to chuck money at the bands and the artists I love. Like it's made, really made me personally feel like, actually, I, I want to spend money above and beyond my streaming subscription. And so whether that's buying much. So yeah, I mean, streaming is still good. It's, it's one thing you should say, actually. Like if, you are, if, you are, if you are actively engaging with someone's music, if you're like adding tracks to your library and to your playlist, if you're following the artist's profile, these are all signals to Spotify or whoever's algorithm that will help them get discovered by other people. And that's kind of one of the things we don't talk about a lot, but you can actually, you can help them get discovered by just streaming and interacting with them. And so, so if you, so follow, follow an artist, add the tracks and add tracks to your library will somehow help skew the algorithm or it will just increase the chances of other people finding it. Yeah. So these algorithms, like they kind of do two things. I'm going to really, really brutally simplify it all like into meaningless. But they basically, they understand, well, well, they understand music. They understand what music is like, what, like what other music, they understand like kind of, you know, what similar genres, similar things. But they also understand listeners. Like they might understand that you and I have a certain crossover in what we like. And we may be really well matched or you may be more matched than someone else. And then they will say, right, okay, so if Steve is listening to New Idols album and his profile matches Stuart, Stuart might like New Idols album too. So the more you the more you do, everything you do on a streaming service is a signal to the algorithm to recommend the stuff you like to people like you. So that's why a lot of like even when artists are complaining about streaming royalties, they often don't say don't stream music. They're saying look, please still listen to us and follow us and do all that stuff because it can be useful. But yeah, there are other there are other things I think. Um, that you can help. So, so one of one of the big things is pay for streaming if you use it, if you can, if you can afford to. Like a streaming subscription generates much bigger royalties than a free free um, account does. Um, and the bigger the royalty pool is, the more money there is. Um, but yeah, I think that the real thing is like looking for ways to support artists beyond streams. Um, so I, mean, I know a lot of people now who buy albums despite not having a CD player anymore. They'll buy CDs or even without a turntable, buy vinyl purely as a way to kind of put money to the company, to the artist, buying merch, buying gig tickets, crowdfunding. Like I've sort of just started, whenever I, I, I love someone, I, I look for the way to support them as directly as possible. So if they have their own store, uh, if it's a concert. Uh, so there's there's that, the kind of idea of like streaming is just one part of an artist's income, but you, there are other ways you can contribute, I think. And, it, and one point in Spotify's favor is they're doing more to help all that. So they're promoting concert listings, they're promoting merch from artists, links. Like you see it now when you're listening to the song. So I think it's realized that it could do more to encourage people to support. So I think there's there's changes happening there where there are ways to support artists and the streaming services are going to go, well, you know what, actually, 
there's no reason why we shouldn't be pointing to those. It doesn't harm us, but it helps, could help the artists. It's interesting you, you mentioned, you know, buying the T-shirt, the album, or, you know, sometimes multiple copies of the album. Because uh, and just before we come off the, the subject of streaming for this week, um, looking ahead at what's going to happen next, I mean, apart from the ongoing campaigns to change the payment method, where, where are the streaming services looking to expand is uh, the question because there, there, there is more and more talk of what to do with what's been dubbed the superfan and how the superfan relates to streaming. Can you explain that? Yeah, it's this, it literally is this, this, this year's buzzword, um, which is always a worry. Like last year's buzzword was NFTs and that ended badly. Uh, this is, it's the, so yeah, this idea of like there are people who love artists who would pay more for stuff and that stuff could be early access to the music could get hear the new album three days before us it could be um badging and like gamified stuff so it's like you know you are the 17th top fan of idols because you've done this and that and that that stuff is popular it could be access to the artists you could get like exclusive live streams or you might get first dibs on tickets like all this stuff that you is kind of fan club type stuff like it's not a new idea like it's 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 always been around but the, what's happening this year is there've been some talks about well what what about how could this stuff live within the streaming world how could spotify do a thing where you pay 2 quid extra to spotify and you then get access to your artist superfan club and they get money from that and there's there's just stuff going on like p- people making comments at conferences that just makes me think something is going to happen around this later on this year this idea of how can streaming which it could be really good like if, if a streaming service is where you find music, that's where you might want to pay more because you pay them already for subscriptions. So adding a couple of quid might be really easy. But if you're an artist, you might be like, actually, I want to run my own fan club. I don't want it to be the streaming service that does everything else. So I want to do it myself. So I think that we might have some pushback of artists saying we want to do this ourselves. But this is kind of, a, there's going to be a lot of activity, I think, around that idea of how can you, well, how can you not cap it in a way? Like in the old days, if you were a super fan, you might buy spend loads of money on music now you can spend 10 a month or 11 pounds a month now and that's it and i think they're starting starting to explore again well actually okay who do you love and how can you pay them some more money and how can streaming help you do that if that's what the artist wants and what the fan wants but by the way if you if you can hear the distant sounds of what sounds like children in a playground that's children in a playground it's not the massed ranks of uh, dis, dissatisfied and disaffected music, musicians uh, all marching on the spotify offices after this um, we i mean we could spend the whole rest of the pod probably couldn't we and and next week's and the week afters uh, talking about um, Spotify and various other things relating to streaming. Uh, but uh, any observations on the points we have made so far, uh, drop us a line to our email address, which we'll give you before the end of the program, and then we can pick up on those uh, at another time. But to finish, just while we've got a, a couple of minutes, um, two stories from this week, starting with this. Uh, two big music catalogues have been sold in the past week. There's been a lot of this over the past what, 18 months, two years. Uh, the, um, the music catalogues um, changing hands between, well, all sorts of uh, different companies. Uh, um, but this, there's two big names this week, uh, starting with Michael Jackson. Yeah, so Sony Music has, well, it's one of those things where the, the figure isn't public, but everyone's reporting the same figure, which suggests it is, is true. 
They've paid at least 475 million quid for half of Michael Jackson's catalogue. So not the whole thing. Uh, and this is his songs, his compositions, but also he's got a publishing company that owns songs that were recorded by like Ray Charles and Elvis Presley and Aretha Franklin. So it's some other stuff too. And I think it's the biggest deal. Well, in terms of what the value of his whole catalogue would be, it's the biggest one so far. Although there's rumours that Queen might beat it. They're in talks to sell their catalogue and that might beat it. But yeah. And it's all about, it's kind of, it's partly about streaming. Like I looked up, Michael Jackson's got like 39 million monthly listeners on Spotify still. Um, but it's also everything else, like all the ra- every radio station playing his classic hits. Um, there's a biopic film coming out and that's going to have music in it. So it's kind of one of the biggest evergreen catalogues in music, you know. Um, so the value is kind of got accordingly, I suppose. So uh, my, half of Michael Jackson's music catalogue uh, sold, uh, but also Rod Stewart. Yeah, Rod Stewart, who has sold his whole catalogue of songs for nearly $100 million, so nearly 80 million quid, which is his, his stuff, it's the faces, it's his kind of his songwriting. Um, and whereas the Michael Jackson one was for Sony, the, 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 the music company, um, Rod Stewart has been sold to a company called Iconic Artists Group, which is owned by Irving Azoff, or Azoff, I don't know how you say it, American. But he, he used to be the boss of Ticketmaster. He's a longtime Eagles manager. He's a music industry veteran. Um, and his company just raised a billion dollars of new investment to buy catalogues. And Rod Stewart was the kind of first deal out the door, which, which I'm really excited about because, and this is close to your heart too, Rod Stewart lives near Harlow in Essex, yeah. near me. <laughs> and um, yeah, a couple does. of years ago, he was filmed like filling potholes on his road. Like he, he kind of went out because... Um, so my hope is now he's got enough money, he might actually come and fill potholes on my road, you know, kind of extend his pothole empire. Now he's got the fans. Well, if he's got all this money, maybe he could just, he could have a crack at the whole M11 uh, and a bit of the <laughs> A120. Um, he's probably just going to build a stand around. Doesn't Rod Stewart have a football pitch at his house? I mean, that's what I've heard. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to look into it in case it's not true because I want to believe it. But I, yeah, I've heard that. Oh, that's not- yeah, I think it's good. And they were always, when I worked on the, the Harlow Gazette, the first thing they told any music fan who walked through the door was, oh, Rod Stewart lives over there. And uh, who else was that? There's a member of Iron Maiden who lives quite close by as well, uh, as it goes. Very popular amongst pop stars is that bit of Essex. I know. I, I know people who've bumped into Rod Stewart in Bishop Stortonplace, and he, apparently he is always friendly, always happy with photos, very nice man. So, you know, good. Which Which is one of those small things, but I think... That, that justifies $100 million and being happy about that, I think. <laughs> it's gone to a nice man who fills potholes. <laughs> uh, lastly, this is uh, news which is not unexpected, but um, uh, is still very sad. The, this is the latest report from uh, the UK-based Nighttime Industries Association, which, uh, following on from our coverage of uh, the challenges facing grassroots uh, live music venues, uh, it's now clubbing is in decline. Nearly a third of nightclubs shut their doors over the last three years i think you've read the report i believe i have yeah so it's kind of it's about electronic music and it's one of these reports of two halves because electronic music is doing really well in some ways like it's it's got a good share of streaming uh at festivals in the uk electronic music is is a bigger share of acts like there was there were some really good things happening around the genre but yeah so there were visits to nightclubs dropped nine percent last year um and then i think yes uh I think the number of nightclubs fell by 4% last year. But yeah, you're right. It's been a third since the beginning of the pandemic. And obviously the pandemic is quite a big factor in that because for a couple of years, clubbing was pretty hard. Yeah. 
Yeah, this and, and hasn't there been? There's been one or two quite high profile closures quite recently. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's in a way, it's parallel, isn't it, to the to the venues debate we're talking about about famous music venues um, like Moles and Bath. Like, you're not too too big or too famous a clubbing a club venue to kind of close. And um and the the, the report was interesting because it was kind of just setting out the reasons and it was kind of as a cost of living crisis and people are apparently going out less. They're drinking less when they're out. They're going to fewer, bigger events. Um, and they're also focusing around the weekends increasingly. And that's when they go out, which if you're a club, you can't, a lot of clubs would struggle to survive just on weekend events. So that's where they're struggling. Um, and also DJ fees are increasing. There's kind of licensing issues similar to, to other venues where, you know, you, people are making complaints for noise and you're having to struggle with that sort of thing. Um, and the report talks about it like it's like a vicious cycle that it said, like, you know, the more venues close down, people have fewer chances to kind of fall in love with going out clubbing. Um, and that creates problems for like emerging artists because you've got, you know, where, where are you going to play if you're an emerging DJ or electronic acts? So it's an interesting report, really, because it says this music is more relevant than ever. But the live aspect of it is struggling. And a lot of it, I think, is geared towards, as with the Music Venue Trust for, for um, band venues, is geared towards getting the government to take notice and say, look, electronic music and clubbing is is a cultural, it's important culturally to the, to our country, especially, um, and it needs support. So that's kind of, I think, the, the point of this saying, there are these problems, but we, if we can have support, we can help to kind of tackle them. Mm. Uh, that's a story which I'm sure rear its head again uh, over the coming months. Uh, but that's it from us for this week. Uh, thank you very much uh, for listening, as always. Uh, and if you have enjoyed this episode, uh, please do subscribe to the show in your podcast app and give us a review and a rating if you get a chance. If you get a second, we'd really appreciate it. Uh, and of course, <laughs> and if you wouldn't mind, we're asking a lot of you. Uh, but if you like it, do pass on our details to anyone else you think uh, might be interested. And of course, if you have a question for us that you'd like answered on the show uh, you can email us at this address the price of music podcast at gmail.com thanks again everybody say goodbye Stuart goodbye Stuart <laughs>